Coming up next on the Cultural Connections podcast, we'll be joined by Shamli Gatte, Senior Revenue Specialist at the Revenue Development Foundation. We'll learn more about her work in East and West Africa, as well as a first-hand look at the COVID-19 pandemic in India. This episode is being recorded live on Friday, May 14, 2021. This is the Cultural Connections Podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Brian Ives, and I am the producer and host of the Cultural Connections Podcast. Before I introduce our guest today, I want to remind all of our viewers that are watching that we are recording this episode live on Friday, May 14th, 2021 on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. As a reminder, immediate, if you miss any portion of this episode, you can always go back following the broadcast to see it's in entirety on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. In addition, we also broadcast this episode live and we'll be broadcasting this episode following the live broadcast on Instagram, uh, as well as listening platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. Uh, so without further ado, let me introduce you to our guest today. We are really getting cultural with our guest today, and we're taking you across the globe here with our guest. And our guest is Shamli Gatte. Shamli is an international development specialist currently working at the Revenue Development Foundation, being embedded at the Ministry of Mines and Energy in Liberia, West Africa. She has experience in the natural resource governance sector with a license granting systems for the diamond, gold, and iron ore mines. Prior to this, she worked with the United Nations Capital Development Fund in Malawi, Grameen Bank and Trust in Bangladesh, and other institutions in India where she was born and raised. She completed her undergraduate education at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, and she holds a Master of Philosophy in Development Studies from the University of Oxford, United Kingdom. Thank you, Shamli, for joining me today. Thanks, Brian, for inviting me. Thank you again. Well, for this episode today, we're going to be breaking the episode into three parts. The first episode, we're going to be talking about Shambly's background, followed by that, we're going to be discussing her career. And the last part of the show is going to be talking about the current COVID-19 uh, situation in India uh, right now with a first-hand look on that. Shambly will be giving us a first-hand look. In addition, if we have some time, we'll get into some other discussion points on this. I also want to remind all of our viewers watching that today is if you're watching during the live broadcast again on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, uh, you may comment below with any questions you may have for during the broadcast as we will like we will gladly answer them for you. Just please be aware that we are only able to monitor one feed at a time. The first feed we'll be monitoring for the first 15 minutes, as I mentioned, will be Facebook, followed by that for the next 15 minutes will be Twitter, and the remaining end of the broadcast will be on YouTube, uh, will be watching our YouTube feed, as unfortunately we can't monitor all of our feeds at the same time. So I guess let's start, Shamli, with you telling our viewers a little bit about your background, um, and, and then we'll get into your career. All right. So I was born and brought up in a beautiful multicultural multilingual port city called Mangalore on the west coast of India. And I was born in a family of six, my parents, one sibling, and we also had grandparents living under the same roof, which is a kind of a common practice in this part of the world. I completed my schooling in Mangalore and then went on to pursuing my undergraduate studies at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Funnily enough, I happened to meet my now husband, Alex, who is from Acton, Massachusetts at Clark University. Later, I attended my um, MPhil degree at University of Oxford in the United Kingdom, 
post education, I have been working in the field of international development, and I have been fortunate to work in various organizations. Uh, as you mentioned, I've worked for Grameen Trust, uh, UNCDF, which is the United Capital Development, uh, United Nations Capital Development Fund, and currently I'm working for Revenue Development Foundation in a country called Liberia in West Africa. I'm embedded at the Ministry of Mines and Energy in Liberia at the moment. Uh, from about March 2020, I've been working at home due to the pandemic situations where uh, we're all working from home. Uh, sorry, Brian, I can't hear you. Sorry, there we go, sorry. <laughs> uh, very interesting there. Um, let's get... Uh, with a, what an impressive background. Um, and now we're gonna jump right into it with your career as you just started to allude to some of that stuff. And uh, let, let's, I guess, start with the basic question here is what got you interested in international development? Why did you wanna go in this direction? So from as long as I can remember, I've always been wanting to be active in the community around me. When I was in school, I was involved in various NGOs that operate in Mangalore. Um, I was heading some of the initiatives like Joy of Giving, where kids from affluent schools used to donate a toy to a kid who went to um, schools in the lower economic uh, background areas and things like that. So I think that was always there in me but as i grew up i wanted to understand international development i wanted to understand economic inequalities at a theoretical academic level and so i pursued uh, mphil in development studies at the university of oxford and after completing my degree i sort of wanted to combine what i studied theoretically into the practical experience i had gained throughout my life in the different uh, internships and volunteerships i had done so i ended up uh, choosing a career in international development oh very interesting very very interesting uh so your career as you mentioned has spanned over multiple countries specifically in the east and west africa area in liberia as you mentioned uh, as well as in places like Bangladesh as well. What, what would you say has been your biggest learning experience working in these multiple different countries? Um, I think I would say that um, one of the biggest learning has been that people are equally well, welcoming and warm in all different parts of the world. Uh, initially going from India, which is uh, especially Mangalore, which is a homogenous society, going to a different culture used to make me a bit nervous. I didn't know how they would accept me as an outsider. But then I realized uh, through my various uh, missions in different countries that uh, people are very warm, welcoming. And as long as you are somebody who's interested to learn about their culture and assimilate, they always have a place for you in the society. And that's been one of the greatest learnings I've had. Great. Now that's very interesting. Then I guess on the flip side of that, that you talk, we talked about the biggest learning, the biggest thing you've learned from that. I, I guess we can tie that into then the similar question on then what has been the biggest challenge you have faced with uh, working in so many different countries? I think one of the biggest challenge has been working in settings that uh, are not very well funded, that are low in uh, technology or sometimes education capacity. Um, coming from, say, like having studied in the UK or the US, 
we are used to fast speed internet or a good infrastructure where you have public transport or roads or you know bike lanes and all of this so going to a country like liberia can be a transition uh, since the country is still up and coming um, not all of the infrastructure is in place so sometimes you go into the office and you have power cuts for a couple of days and you have to manage that and those sorts of little things were something uh, that i had to get used to over the period of time I see. Okay. Yeah, of course. Of course. Okay. Well, you know, I think now what let's start switching our, our gear over because I think I wanted to spend a majority of this of this discussion on the COVID-19 pandemic in India, which recently here in the States, obviously, we've been seeing the impact that this devastating uh, virus that continues to really impact so many people worldwide. We saw it here in the United States. We continue to see it here in the United States, but recently everyone's uh, everyone has turned their head to seeing what's happening over in India. And I guess before I dive deep into those types of questions is why don't we start off with you giving us just an overview right now of exactly what where th- what what is currently where things are currently happening with in, in, with COVID-19 in India um, specifically, and then we'll get into more specific questions. Okay. Um, Sadly, we are currently going through the second wave of COVID-19 pandemic now in India. Uh, We are mostly under a lockdown from the past three weeks. Cases have been slowing down in the recent one or two days, but uh, I think we just have to be patient with the lockdown and follow the rules until we get it under control. Uh, Senior citizens have been vaccinated, which is uh, great news, and uh, 45 plus age group is now being vaccinated. A few days ago, they also opened limited slots for 18 plus age group, so we are making progress in terms of vaccination uh, drives, so hopefully in the coming months, we will be able to come out of the pandemic. Well, that would be excellent news, especially from what we're seeing. And I, I guess one of the questions that I have here is seeing the, I mean, and it's something I think in general, a lot of people make the deception here that the media here in, in the States, and I think even around the world globally, we've seen this, especially in recent years where the media can um, really sometimes over go overboard with the way it covers a crisis like this COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen it here in the States with some of the information that they have provided here. What, what uh, Would you say that the media's portrayal of what is going on in India is accurate? And this includes social media too. We've, we've, we, we, we've seen so much here coverage every single day that continues to make, even though you're, what you're saying, what, I, what I'm gathering is that yes, numbers are starting to slowly go down. And I, I do have the numbers here that I, as from what I read online within the last 24 hours that there were, uh, that there were at least, let's go with the deaths, almost 4,000 deaths within the last 24 hours of COVID-19 in India. Would you say that the media's portrayal is accurate, same thing with social media, or do you think from what we're seeing here in the States that some of it is a little being overdone? So I think it's a complicated situation. Of course, uh, there is a lot of death and there are lots of infections in the country. So we have to take it seriously. It's not something to take lightly, of course, and it's a pandemic situation. But having said that, we are one of the largest countries uh, in terms of population, right? We are the second largest uh, in the world. So given the population, uh, say 4,000 people uh, for a city, even like my size, we have uh, 500,000 people just in a tier two, tier three city in India, yet alone in like big cities, we have 
hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people living in cities. So it is a relatively smaller number, but um, definitely there has been a shortage in oxygen beds or ventilators, especially because when there's a surge of uh, infections and everybody wants a ventilator, uh, the country is not prepared to give everybody a ventilator, right? Because in a normal situation, you don't have that many people wanting a ventilator. So of course there's a crisis, but I do think that um, the media only highlights the number of deaths and uh, the devastation, but equally there are high number of people who are recovering from the infections every day, going back home from the hospitals, which is not as much shown in the media, unfortunately. Of course, of course. Now, you, you just mentioned uh, in that answer, you mentioned tier two and tier three uh, communities. Can you explain what that means? What do you mean by tier two and tier three communities? Okay, by that I meant, I mean, Mangalore it would be considered probably a tier two, tier three city because it's not one of the biggest cities in India. And we still have 500,000 people living here, right? So you can imagine the population density Oh, in this country compared to uh, any Western nation for that matter. So just given the amount of people living in India, the number of infections are uh, not that high, even though it is a serious matter and we have to take it seriously. Right. Now, one of the things that we, at least this was as reported even just as around a week or two ago here in the States, and it seems like from what you're saying is that the vaccination effort is getting better, but if I'm not mistaken, just around a week or two ago, it was only less than 4% of the population in India that had been getting the vaccination. And I know that in other countries as well, there's been this huge concern, specifically to what I've re read in reports that in like Thailand, where, they, um, where the government is hoarding the vaccine for certain groups of people, what, what is, what, in India, what is, I mean, it seems like now the vaccination rollout is getting, going better. And I know from here in the States as well, that there that we have sent a lot of supplies down, down your direction, along with the uh, vaccines. Um, and I also know that India also has to, as I think that they are using their own, or at least in the, the vaccines that we don't know about here in the States. We, we know about the main three here, Moderna, Pfizer, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, wh what is India doing to calm the, to calm the nerves of getting, what doing to get people to get their vaccine? So one of the things that has really worked uh, in advantage for our country is that India is one of the biggest manufacturers of the vaccine for the world, as you may know. So that's been a really good thing for us, which means we have domestic capacity to produce vaccines. Uh, one of the most popular vaccine we use here is the AstraZeneca one, the one that has come out of the UK. Uh, it's being produced here in India. We call it Covishield, and then there's another uh, vaccine called uh, Covaxin. Right now, I recently heard that the Russian vaccine has come to India, and as you rightly said, the United States has sent a lot of help. So with all of that, I'm sure we'll be in a better place in the coming months. We are a large population, a billion people, so it is hard to vaccinate everybody in a very short period of time, especially when uh, a majority of our population is rural. We need to uh, make sure there's infrastructure in place to vaccinate everybody. And 
having to give two doses also complicates it, right? Like you have to give the first dose and then make sure the person gets the second dose. So it is a longer process. So I think it will take a couple of months for our country to uh, come to grips with the situation, but I'm, I'm really hopeful that uh, we right. will be okay and that things will be better. Oh, that, that, that's what anyone can really hope for. And before we go any further, I just want to remind all of our viewers here that we are recording this episode live on Friday, May 14th, 2021. We are recording this episode live on three platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. So to any of our viewers that are watching with us live, if you are watching through Twitter right now, that is the feed that we are currently monitoring uh, for, for the next 10 to 15 minutes. From that, we're going to move over to our YouTube feed. We'll still try to jump back between all three of them from time to time. So if you have questions, you may put them in any of the comment, comment below, and we will gladly uh, answer them for you. Talking here about the COVID-19 pandemic, from what it seems as though as we watch uh, in India, as numbers continue, it looked like we're finally at the We've reached the peak and it looks like that maybe numbers, knock on wood, are going to start, are starting to slowly come down. But we're watching in areas neighboring, which are also getting significantly impacted. Like we've seen, um, there's been reports coming out of Nepal, uh, which has been getting greatly impacted uh, recently by this pandemic, uh, with numbers soaring there. And these are places that originally shows you again we still don't know the entirety of this virus but we've saw these areas well the states here in the states we were getting ravaged left and right by the, this pandemic but now what we're starting to see as we make a turn these other countries are starting to see it really bad specifically in nepal now being so close to nepal it, it's obviously a different story i'm assuming with getting a vaccine rollout over there by any chance do you know what the, what the success rate in getting a vaccine rollout is going on over there by any chance? Um, I am not up to date with their vaccination programs, but uh, I have been following the news in Nepal and it is very sad indeed. Uh, it's the same, I think, uh, what's happening in India is now starting to happen in Nepal. The cases are going up. Um, but uh, yeah, I can only hope that maybe with enough uh, protection and lockdowns, they'll be able to overcome it in the short run. And then, of course, vaccinations in the long run. It is a challenge uh, for sure, Brian. It's something that we have been fighting. Um, as you rightly said, we were watching this in the media so much last year and hearing about the United States, hearing about Italy, hearing about Germany, France, and now it's the same thing happening here and right before India, it was Brazil that was in the news a lot. Um, right, so course. it's something that's going around the world. And uh, sadly, sadly, this is the situation I guess we have to all face. Yes, no, um, of course, agreed. Um, then in that case, as we talk about this virus and the COVID-19 pandemic in India, uh, we, it, it, it seems to be that, I mean, is that, it, that you talk about the lockdown there. Um, and I know when we think of a lockdown, when we, when we talked about lockdowns here in the States, which we went through a lot of last year, a lockdown here in the States basically meant that restaurants weren't allowed to have indoor dining or, or any type of, or have any type of, uh, I can say indoor, or at the time it wasn't even outdoor dining, any 
we could only do takeout or delivery. And this was right, I'm talking right at the height of the pandemic here uh, for us, that restaurants had to fully shut down, movie theaters, gyms, uh, whatever you can think of, basically retail, everything was shutting down left and right, uh, which obviously had its devastating impact on the economy. Now, in India, they, t they take a little bit more on, it seems, the, the more conservative approach to a lockdown uh, with this COVID-19 pandemic. Can you explain what a what they what you in India what a lockdown looks like uh, compared obviously to compared to what I'm saying what we looked at here in the states. So we had different forms of lockdowns over the time. Last year, for about three months, we had a complete shutdown. As you explained, no restaurants, no retail shops, uh, no businesses were open, and uh, only essential services such as groceries, medicines, uh, hospitals were pretty much open. Uh, that lasted for about three months in 2020. And then from May, June onwards last year, life started to slowly come back to normal. And there was a feeling that maybe we are done with the pandemic and that we've come out okay. However, it was kind of shocking uh, during the month of March in 2021, suddenly the number of infections rose and it came out of nowhere. And suddenly there were infections everywhere. Hospitals were being overwhelmed. And then we went back into a very strict lockdown to curb the spread of infections. Uh, so from the past three months in my city, we have been on a very strict lockdown. Um, we are allowed to go to fetch essential services such as groceries or milk or um, other things between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. in the morning. And then everybody's supposed to be indoors after that and all the economic activities shut. Only food delivery, grocery delivery and um, pharmacies and uh, hospitals are open. People are only allowed to move around if they're going for a vaccination or if they have a flight to take or a train to catch and for some uh, very important medical emergency or family emergency. Other than that, uh, they're supposed to stay indoors. And the other essential service that's uh, obviously open is the financial services like the banking industry and some of the major government uh, wings are open. But other than that, most of the economy is shut. Right. No, of course. And that, that makes perfect sense there. Then you, you mentioned how the cases uh, skyrocketed out of control in March 2021. And if I'm not mistaken, I mean, before this, the number of vaccine, the vaccination rate was below 3% or something like that. What, what, what was the decision making behind of trying to put things back to, no? I mean, even here in the States, we were not easing back into normal activity. So people really started getting vaccinate, vaccinated. And that's what we're starting now, finally, to see that things are starting to get back into a normal situation. But in India, it seems like it was almost in a way backwards where they said, let's reopen things, even though people aren't vaccinated. What led to this? What, what kind of idea thought was to do that, that the government thought that this would be some sort of smart, I guess, idea or not so smart? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the hindsight, yeah, definitely uh, not so smart. But I guess at the time. Um, number of cases were pretty low and even after opening up the country, uh, say from like March 2020 up until 
I mean, sorry, May 2020 up until say March 2021, things slowly started to open up and people were normally uh, doing their life, of course, wearing a mask and all of that. So it was not completely uh, right. what it was like before, but um, it was more or less normal, I can say. Um, and I guess the rationale was that hospitals weren't overwhelmed, right? So we didn't see cases to a point where uh, there were no ventilators or there were no hospital beds anymore. It, it didn't seem like a crisis situation, even though COVID was around, many infections were around, it wasn't spreading as fast as it is in the past couple of months. Suddenly around March, 2021, we saw a huge sharp rise in the number of infections number of hospitalizations hospitals started complaining that there there's not enough uh, room to accommodate everybody who's coming in for ventilators and that's when the crisis situation really started back up again mm, i see well again i before we go further i just want to remind our viewers that we're recording this live here on three different platforms we're live on friday may 14th 2021 and we are recording this live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube with our guest, Sham Ligate, uh, who is talking between with us about both her work with uh, that we started with on her work in international development. And right now, as we start to transition our discussion, we've been talking about the devastating impact the COVID-19 pandemic has had on India, but really, obviously, worldwide. And now let's switch into a more lighter note here in the last uh, five or so, five, 10 minutes that we have to talking about an interest of yours that you uh, mentioned to me, which is about Indian classical dance. You have a very big interest in that. And why don't you first start off telling us what is uh, Indian, culture, uh, Indian classical dance? Okay, so there are about seven forms of Indian classical uh, dance forms in the country, which date back to um, roughly 2000 years. Um, some of them are more recent and the one that I practice is a pretty old dance form that has been developed over centuries. Um, there are manuscripts and um, there are uh, temples with demonstrations of the various dance poses that you can see across the country. Um, the form I practice is called Bharatnatyam. And recently I finished my Vidwath grade exam, which is the master's equivalent in uh, the dance form. I have been practicing it for over 20 years now. Uh, it's something I enjoy doing. I feel like it uh, brings me closer to uh, the culture in my hometown, especially when I'm away from home, it really helps me to sort of stay connected. And uh, that's why I love doing it. And now what would you say then got you interested in, in, in learning this, this dance? What, why did you want to get interested in doing this? What got you interested in it? I think initially my parents uh, just sent me to the dance school because, you know, parents want you to be active and be trying out new things. That's how I started uh, going to the dance class around the age of five. But I think slowly it started to really um, grow on me. I loved doing it. I wanted to go there. I had a group of friends that I did it with. So then slowly it became my passion. But really until sort of the past two, three years, I didn't 
pursue it as a strong passion but i think as an adult revisiting something that i have been doing all my life has just been amazing like i can read books now i can read scriptures now i can visit temples and understand it at a deeper level in a way i wouldn't be able to when i was 5 or 6 when i started off right so it's been a great experience coming back to it as an adult and learning it again and taking exams and all of that so yeah i'm enjoying it at the moment and i keep doing it especially during the lockdown it's something that keeps me in good shape and good mental health and physical health so i love doing that right now of course during this pandemic obviously this covid-19 pandemic and especially now you mentioned that you can go out and see these types of performances i assume obviously likelihood is you're not going to see as much of that right now uh in the middle of this pandemic but uh if you weren't in the middle of this pandemic would this be something you would see uh, all over in india or is it something you would see only i mean the, with the people is this something a, a a regular thing that you would see all throughout india yeah so um the seven different forms are from seven different parts of india the one i perform is closely linked to the southern part of india so yes it is pretty widely practiced um in temples in ceremonies so if you're able to just uh, go to a temple during an auspicious day probably you'll catch a glimpse of somebody performing this dance form there it's very much seen as a holy thing to do it's a, a form of worship of god it's seen as a form of offering to god so it has a lot of um, cultural and religious connotation to it um, unlike say the modern dance forms like hip hop or you know break dance or whatever which is a more modern version of dancing this is the classical version so it has roots in history and tradition and culture that dates back to thousands of years very very interesting and a nice little light way to uh and our quick it's amazing i say it every single time i do this podcast it's amazing how fast a 40 minute broadcast goes by again just to remind our viewers that we're watching that as we just wrap up if you have any last minute questions you'd like answered while i am wrapping up here and you're watching through youtube we're live here on friday may 14th 2021 uh with our guest Shamli Gatte who is has been talking this entire time about her background, her career in international development, a uh, big discussion on the COVID-19 pandemic in India and also we just learned about an interest on hers of India of Indian cultural of Indian classical dance all a very making for a very interesting cultural show today. Hence cultural connections. But with that said, I want to thank uh, you Shamli for joining me today again on the podcast and again reminding to our viewers that this podcast is always available to re-listen to on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. In addition, you'll always be able to find it for watching on Instagram as well as listening platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Sp- Podcasts, Spotify just to name a few. along with the local cable television station in Newton Massachusetts where we broadcast from it is also available for both listening as well as now watching on the station at certain times of the day so again i want to thank you shamli for joining me today and stay tuned for our next from further episodes of the cultural connections podcast i'm brian ives and i'm the producer and host of the cultural connections podcast thanks for watching everyone and we'll see you next time Thank you again for joining us for this episode of the Cultural Connections podcast. To learn more about this episode, be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
You can also listen to this podcast in its entirety on listening platforms Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Breaker, Radio Public, New TV, and many more of your favorite podcasting platforms. Thank you again for joining us on this episode of the Cultural Connections Podcast.